Uh, in the meantime, let me welcome you to chapter 28 of S.M. Houghton's uh, Sketches from Church History. Today we are, as I said, going to be going over England Receives the Light. This is part two of uh, that. So before we get started, let's pray. God, our gracious Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would help us, O oh Lord, to understand your work uh, in history and to understand that uh, you cause all things to work for the good of your church. Uh, Lord, we know that we are going to read about some uh, times that were uh, difficult, to put it mildly, for your people. But, Lord, we know that you were with them all the way, just as you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the uh, furnace. So you were with the English reformers as they did their work, and the humble Protestants as they attempted to bring the light of the gospel to their land. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. England receives the light. For three chief reasons, we introduce at this point an English Reformation martyr named Anne Askew. Finally, uh, firstly rather, she was martyred during the reign of Henry VIII, whereas it is sometimes taken for granted that 16th century Protestants were put to death in, for their faith in the reign of Queen Mary Tudor only. But Henry's reign had its sufferers for conscience and for Christ's sake. Secondly, Anne Askew well represents the many women who loved not their lives to the death. For obvious reasons, the history of the Reformation period, as of all periods in the Christian era, is largely devoted to the witness and activities of men, but godly women also played their part and bore their witness. Thirdly, it is helpful in the 20th century, as in all others, to realize how martyrs bore testimony before their judges, and to remember that the Lord gave a special promise to his witnesses, as recorded in Luke 12, 15, 21.15. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Anne Askew was the daughter of a Lincolnshire knight and was about 25 years of age when she was burned at the stake after being tortured upon the rack by none other than the Lord Chancellor of England himself in order to get her to abandon her, quote, heresies. Finally, she swooned away and was taken to a house and laid in a bed with as weary and painful bones as ever had patient Job. During her imprisonment, she wrote a poem of twelve verses, of which we give three. Like as the armed knight appointed to the field, with this world will I fight, and faith shall be my shield. Faith is that weapon strong, with wit, uh, which will not fail at need. My foes, therefore among, therefore will I proceed. On thee my care I cast, for all their cruel spite. I set not by their haste, for thou art my delight. Anne was a person of ready speech and wit, and in no uncertain way she was accustomed to state her convictions. She was taken into one of London's halls for close questioning by Christopher Dare, a theologian of the Roman Catholic Church. In her own account of the ordeal, she numbered the questions put to her. First, Dare, do you believe that the sacrament hanging over the altar is the very body of Christ, really? Anne, why was Stephen stoned to death? Dare, I cannot tell. Anne, no more will I answer your vain question. Anne meant to dare to understand that Stephen had seen Christ in glory, a son of man, standing at the uh, right hand of God, Acts 7.56, so that it was not possible for his body to be in a pyx above a Roman altar on earth. Now, to uh, uh, let you know 
um, in Roman Catholicism, after the host is consecrated by the priest, that is after the, uh, during the, the uh, what they call the sacrifice of the mass and the bread is blessed by the, uh, the priest, what happens is a portion of it after the, uh, uh, the mass is celebrated by the, uh, uh, the celebrants and the officiant, uh, that portion which is not uh, consumed is put away uh, in what is either called a sacristy or here he calls it a pyx. Uh, sometimes it was hung above the altar Sometimes it stood at the uh, uh, in a particular niche in the narthex or something, but regardless, it was uh, considered to be the presence of uh, the body of Christ literally in the church. And so, when Roman Catholics come into the church and they see the candle lit to indicate that the uh, the sacristy is full and the body of Christ is present, they literally kneel before uh, bits of bread. Um, of course, that's what uh, we Protestants would say that. The, the bread does not literally become the body of Christ. And that's what Anaski was attempting to uh, persuade uh, the Archbishop Dare to understand. Um, the, uh, the idea being that this is uh, not, it cannot be the body of Christ if Christ's body is literally present at the right hand of, uh, of God, his physical flesh is there. And that Jesus did not literally mean that the bread you are eating when he gave it to the apostles of the first uh, uh, Lord's Supper is literally my body. He did not begin to bleed spontaneously uh, before them. So in any event, she's, she's making that point. We'll make several other good points as well. Dare, a woman has testified that you have read how God is not in temples made with hands and so it is said in the 7th and 17th chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, as Stephen and Paul spoke. Dare, how do you take these sentences? And I will not throw pearls among swine, for acorns are good enough. Dare, three. Dare, why did you say that you would rather read five lines in the Bible than hear five masses? And, because the one does greatly edify me, the other nothing at all. As St. Paul says, if the trump give an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself to the battle? For, dare, you have said that if an evil priest ministered, it was the devil and not God. And, I spoke no such thing, but I said that an evil person ministering to me could not hurt my faith. But in spirit, I received nevertheless the body and blood of Christ. Five, dare, what have you said concerning confession? And, that as St. James saith, every man ought to acknowledge his faults to others, and the one to pray for the other. That is, and did not hold to the Roman Catholic confessional. 6. Dare. What have you said of the King's Book, the erudition of a Christian man, compiled to various the theologians and published by the Order of Henry VIII? And I can say nothing about it, for I never saw it. 7. Dare. Have you the Spirit of God in you? And if I have not, I am but a reprobate or cast away. Uh, 8. I have seen a uh, dare, this is. I have sent for a priest to examine you as to the sacrament of the altar. Priest. What do you believe about the sacrament? Anne, I will say nothing, because said Anne, I receive him a papist. I perceived him, rather, a papist. Uh, nine, dare. Do you think that private masses help departed souls? Anne, it is great idolatry to believe them of more value than the death that Christ died for us. Later, dare handed Anne over to Sir Martin Bowes, King, uh, or Bowes, rather, Lord Mayor of London for further questioning. Before I get to that, just uh, a comment on the last part. Um, the idea that private masses uh, help the departed to get through purgatory faster, purgatory being the uh, intermediate state between uh, death and heaven, 
that most Roman Catholics believe that they will pass through because uh, they believe they literally have to be purged of all of the stains of uh, their sins. There are, uh, in Roman Catholicism, two different kinds of sins. There's the, uh, there's mortal sins and venial, or venial sins, small uh, sins. Little sins, uh, and the little sins don't take away your um, salvation, but the great sins do. And they believed that um, most people would die not having done enough good works in order to enter into heaven directly. So they had to go and uh, go through purgatory and have uh, the remaining corruption uh, literally burned away by fire in that place for thousands of years before they could go. So you could pay money to the church to hold a mass uh, said for them, and then time would be given off uh, in purgatory for the uh, departed soul. Uh, essentially, it was a pay-to-get-out-of-purgatory system. Jane says, it is so easy for us to expect freedom to worship to continue unhampered. It would be easier to remain uninformed by our legacy. Thank you for sharing their experiences and perseverance. You're very welcome, Anne. Let's get back to poor old Anne Askew, who is uh, being tormented by uh, the servants of the church, that is the Church of Rome and King Henry VIII. Later, Dare handed Anne over to Sir Martin Bowes, Lord Mayor of London, for further questioning. Bowes, thou foolish woman! After the words of consecration, i.e. in the service of the Mass, is it not the Lord's body? Anne, no, it is but consecrated bread or sacramental bread. Bowes, what if a mouse eat it after the consecration? What will become of the mouse? What sayest thou, foolish woman? And what shall become of it, say you, my lord? Bose, I say that the mouse is damned. <laughs> and alack, poor mouse. Sent back to prison, Anne was visited by a priest instructed by Edmund Bonner, Bishop of London. He questioned her closely about the sacrament of the altar, only to receive the emphatic reply, What I have said, I have said. Bonner himself, therefore, decided to talk with her, thinking perhaps that his high office would bring her to a change of mind. Among other questions, he asked her whether a private mass has benefited souls in purgatory. Anne replied to him, as she had replied to Dare. Bonner answered, What sort of an answer is that? Though it were but mean, she replied, yet it is good enough for the question. A little later, she again replied to his arguments, so that he flung himself into his chamber in a great fury, so runs the record. The irresistible power of a bishop had come up against an immovable object, namely the faith of a true Protestant, even though found in a weaker vessel. The burning of Anne Askew, in company with three others, took place outside St. Bartholomew's Church, Smithfield, London, as depicted in old editions of Fox's Book of Martyrs. On a platform erected alongside the stake sat the Lord Chancellor, the Duke of Norfolk, the Earl of Bradford, the Lord Mayor of London, and other notables. A sermon was preached, pardon being offered to the heretics, if only they would recant while there was an opportunity. And, outspoken as ever, commended whatever seemed scriptural in the preacher's words. But when he set the word of God aside, she corrected him, saying, There he misseth, and speaketh without the book. Next, she was given a letter, said to be written by the king himself, also offering her pardon if she would but follow the example of the preacher, who had saved himself some time previously by a recantation. I came not hither to deny my lord and master, was for Anne the only reply that would content her conscience. Let justice be done, cried the Lord Mayor, and without further delay the fire was kindled. Thus were these blessed martyrs, says Fox, compassed with flames of fire as a blessed sacrifice unto God. We have described the trail and martyrdom of Anne Askew at some length in order to preserve the testimony of a remarkable young woman and to illustrate the strong faith 
of the many who held no office in the church of their day. The English nation as a whole was profoundly stirred by the burnings. They remained long in the memory, and the more so as a copy of Fox's book was placed in all parish churches in the reign of Elizabeth so that all who could not afford to buy a copy, and it is a very large book, could read it on church premises. It was not only martyr fires, however, that turned England into a Protestant nation. Another factor of even greater importance was the translation of the Bible into English and the rapid growth of its circulation. The pioneer in this important work was William Tyndale, a scholar skilled in the Hebrew and Greek languages. It is even said of him that whichever of seven languages he spoke, the hearer would suppose him to be speaking in his native tongue. After studying at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge between the years 1510 and 1521, and becoming convinced that most of the clergy knew very little of the Bible, indeed no more than was quoted in their missal, that is the mass book that they carried around, he resolved to give the nation a Bible that even a plowboy could understand. Uh, incidentally, the, the missal obviously was, um, was given to the people of God in place of the Bible. They did not have... Uh, the very word of God in their common tongue uh, given to them, because, of course, if they had the word of God, they might misinterpret it. And uh, the church, oh, hi, Ty, um, good to see you. Uh, the church itself had to interpret the word for them, uh, otherwise they might go wrong. It's interesting that the Jehovah's Witnesses today say that people should not read the Bible by itself because they might misinterpret it and thus go wrong. Anyway, back to this. He resolved to give the nation a Bible that even a plowboy could understand. But he soon discovered that the Roman church would never permit an English translation, or in fact any other translation, to be made and, and printed in England. Consequently, he went to Germany, where he hoped to find liberty in one or other of its many small states. It was by no means a united country. And in 1525, he completed the translating of the New Testament. It was printed with great difficulty, for although the first printing of the Latin, that is the Vulgate Bible, took place in Germany with the approval of the church, the translation of scripture into the language of the people was opposed as strongly in the Rhineland as in England. Finally, Tyndale's books arrived in England hidden in bales of merchandise. The church committed to the flames every copy it could find. At length, after much effort, it caught and burned Tyndale himself. It was a happening for which he had long prepared. He had taken refuge in his latter years in a house in Antwerp, where English merchants enjoyed certain privileges, but a false friend betrayed him to his foes. For a while he was kept in prison in Billvoord, nine miles north of Brussels. It included a winter and a last century uh, in uh, it included a winter and last century in Belgian archives. A researcher discovered a letter, the only letter preserved in the reformer's own hand, written to the governor of the prison. It runs as follows. I entreat your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here during the winter, you will request the procurer to be kind enough to send me uh, from my goods, which he has in his possession, a warmer cap, for I suffer extremely from cold in the head, being afflicted with a perpetual catarrh, which is snot mucus, uh, which is considerably increased in this cell. A warmer coat also for that which I have is very thin. Also, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out, as also are my shirts. He has a woolen shirt of mine. If he will be kind enough to send it, I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth for putting on above. He also has warmer caps for wearing at night. I wish also his permission to have a lamp in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, 
that I may spend my time with that study. And in return, may you obtain your dearest wish, provided always that it be consistent with the salvation of your soul. But if, before the end of the winter, a different decision be reached concerning me, I shall be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. Beneath the surviving portrait of Tyndale in Hertford College, Oxford, are two lines in Latin. We give them in an English translation. The light, that light, o'er all thy darkness roam, in triumph might arise, and exile freely I become, freely a sacrifice. We have previously mentioned that the placing of an English Bible in all parish churches took place as an answer, though not intended so, to dying's, uh, Tyndale's dying prayer. He had hoped to publish the Old Testament in English as well as the New, but the work had to be completed by others. Under God, England owes to Tyndale, Tyndale a very great debt of gratitude. He will ever remain one of the worthiest of her sons. So endeth William Tyndale. It is interesting that um, Tyndale's Bible, of course, uh, formed the nucleus, not only for uh, subsequent translations, but most importantly for the King James Version of the Bible. Many of his translations uh, moved directly into that. And um, uh, many of the, the words that he uh, created, I, I give the example of atonement, have one man, uh, to express biblical themes uh, we still have in the Bible today. Uh, so we cannot be too grateful for uh, William Tyndale and for men with, like him who were zealous to give the Bible to uh, the English-speaking people who are willing to endure even torture and death in order to get the Bible to us. Now, if they were willing to go through so much to ensure that we might have the Bible, how much more ought we to, to, to treasure the Bible ourselves and to desire to keep it whole and to pass it on to posterity? Uh, let us be as zealous for the Bible they translated as they were to translate it for us. In any event, uh, goodbye. I hope I will see you tomorrow when we begin to speak about Scotland. Uh, we'll be doing chapter 29, Scotland Transformed, and speak about the Reformation there. In any event, I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.